0: Support for Innovation Hub comes from Bunker Hill Community College with internship opportunities at Boston's top corporations through BHCC's Learn and Earn program. More information at bhcc.edu le. Support for Innovation Hub comes from Cambridge Savings Bank. Introducing the CSB1 package, a checking account combined with investing through Connect Invest to help you build a better tomorrow. cambridgesavings.com slash CSB1 welcome to innovation hub i'm Kara miller shortly before the financial crisis of 2008 kabir sagal took a job he didn't really want it was a job at jp morgan and on his first day he cried he said he felt like a sellout
1: i wasn't a banker initially i was actually a computer programmer so i was having to like go into like the back office of the investment bank and uh, learn how that functions for a, a good several months. So it was a very uh, harrowing, dark time of my life, but I'm glad I escaped uh, eventually to, uh, to the bright side.
0: Before that escape, though, the world around him started to unravel.
1: When the market started to crash, it was, you know, first it was f- uh, fascinating, but also, you know, people were full of fear, and the people who were working next to me, veterans of the industry who had been there for 20, sometimes 30 years, were getting laid off. They were crying. They were leaving with their boxes uh, of some office supplies in their in their hands. And sure, these are well off people, but you know it was very close up and personal uh, what was happening.
0: What that experience did to Segal was probably not what it would have done for most of us. It made him fascinated by the control that money has over our lives. Segal would go on to become a vice president at J.P. Morgan, and also, kind of unexpectedly, a Grammy Award winning jazz producer. But his fascination with money prompted him to write a book called coined the rich life of money and how its history has shaped us and he says when he tried to figure out why people were crying all around him in 2008 with office supplies in their hands he discovered it's because money affects us profoundly our souls our minds and our
1: bodies you know when they look at brain scans of people who are high on cocaine and people who are about to make money uh, they find that the brain scans are nearly identical. Uh, and that shows that sort of money elicits a deeply evolutionary reward circuitry in the brain known as the nucleus accumbens. Um, and so we we often get very excited with money and we often get very depressed when we don't make the money, certainly when, when we're expecting to. And so there's actually genes you know, genes in our in our uh, DNA and our genetic makeup that determine how we use the money. You look at identical twins, and identical twins who have been separated over a long period of time, they spend money in a similar way, and that's hmm. arguably because of the genetic makeup. And they've done control groups to see if this actually holds up, and that's true. There's so much going on in the brain, and in you know our genetic makeup when it comes to money, we often don't realize uh, that. Our subconscious is manifesting financial decisions, even when we're not really aware of it.
0: let me um go back to the idea of you, you talked about the the excitement around making money as being kind of uh, similar in some ways to taking cocaine. Now, I think to a lot of people, they would think, well, I mean, it is definitely exciting when you are about to make some money. But cocaine, I mean that that seems like <laughs> that that seems like a very. Um, are you really that high? Are you really that excited <laughs> when you're about to make money?
1: Well it elicits enough blood flow to that part of the brain uh, to, to you know to pop on an MRI to se- at a same level. And it's not just drugs, you know, they've taken heterosexual men and they've shown them pictures of dead bodies, naked women, and money. And it's not even close it's money that gets the most excitement (laughs) in the brain. So there is something, um, you know, you need to be able to acquire goods and, you know, provide for yourself probably before you can reproduce. So it's probably one of the first urges that we have is money and obtaining the calories that we need to survive.
0: What was the evolution of physical money? So, moving from coins, you got gold, you got paper money. How did that unfurl?
1: So the first types of money is probably it's considered proto money, which is uh, let's say ten thousand years ago, salt tokened money, but not really fully coins. And you then move into when you say uh, salt,
0: pro- you mean like people were exchanging salt with each other?
1: Yeah, people are trading salt. Okay. I mean, there are, proto, proto money is usually agricultural goods, but also some type of bullion. You know, it can be silver. In ancient Mesopotamia, if you look at sort of five thousand years ago, silver bullion was exchanged. Um, but the first types of currency, to be you know frank with you, is actually debt and obligation. What do I mean by that, if you look at ancient Mesopotamia, there was no coins. Right? People weren't trading coins, but they were. There were financial records of people taking out. Loans. Mm -hmm. And so, this whole idea of credit being the first type of money is very sort of new. And this uh, anthropologists have gone back and they have found that, you know, bartering wasn't the predecessor to money. It was actually credit and debt that led to money. It's not until you get to about 530, 545 BC that you have coined money Mm -hmm. um, gets invented in people say three different places Lydia, uh, China, India. But It had a very democratizing effect on, on, I guess, the population in that in in Greece, now poor people could not have to rely on a middleman or a literate middleman to come to the marketplace and use coins.
0: When you uh, think about the societies you've studied and the kind of development of money, what's one society you'd point to where they made a real leap forward or something really interesting happened when you think about currency and, and trading and, and you know, uh, the development of cash, essentially.
1: Well, you know, I traveled, as part of my job at J.P. Morgan, I traveled to many countries, uh, I think over 25 countries for my day job. And I would always sort of uh, spend extra time researching the history uh, and the meaning of money. And one of the places I found that was particularly Interesting was in Japan, even modern day Japan, because they take this idea of a gift economy to another level, really. And, you know, when I was in Japan, I was staying with some friends and I got them some a present, uh, some fruit, and they said to me, Kabir, I cannot accept this present. <laughs> and I said, Well, why not? And they said, Well, because I'll never be able to repay you. I will never be able to repay you. And the word in Japanese "arigato" translates to loosely, is uh, this burden I can never repay you. Huh. It is too difficult. There's another word "sumimasen," which means I am so sorry I cannot repay you. And so this idea of uh, intricate gift giving, they keep an incredible accounting of who owes who down to sort of uh, you know a very very minute detail. And people may say, well, that's silly. That's you know that's very intricate. But we also have our peculiarities um you know Jamie Dimon looking at the CEO of J.P. Yeah. Morgan he keeps a list in his suit pocket of people who owe him something right so he, <laughs> it's it's a it's a very transactional something we should so, all
0: consider doing <laughs>
1: yeah i mean we all the thing is we probably already have the list in our head right. we all right. know like you know who owes us and who <laughs> owes us a favor which friend stiffed us and so when you ask about, you know, what I learned about money, wherever I went, I realized that, you know, money is really a way to honor and pay off debts. And sometimes the social debts are more uh, powerful than the financial ones.
0: I'm Kara Miller and you're listening to Innovation Hub. I'm talking to Kabir Segal, author of the book Coined the Rich Life of Money and How Its History Has Shaped Us. So in your research and in your work, have you seen things that we do with money that are kind of crazy um, but you know we do it with the best of intentions
1: well one thing that I've looked at and I look at it in my book is the use of of credit cards and so when you take out your credit card and spend um, there's actually less um, activation in your anterior insula um, and that sort of translates to there's less feelings of anxiety Uh, you don't feel uh, like you're parting with your money as much and it makes it almost easier to spend your money and there's been problems with this, you know, like Apple got into had to had a class action lawsuit because kids were spending money on their parents' iPhones because it sort of saves their credit card. And so when you save your credit card on your phone or when you use credit cards, it abstracts the use case of money and you may be more predisposed to spending money that way. So one sort of I guess hack would be to use more cash. It's I know it's difficult and it's you know more problematic. But when people are forced to use cash, they, uh, they're they more conscious of the money exiting them.
0: Yeah. They feel the pain more every time they have to get it out and they see it disappearing from their wallet. Yeah. Um, it's interesting because Jack Dorsey, who uh, founded Square, which is that little you know white square a lot of people have seen, and it can be plugged into your phone or uh, into a tablet and, and you can run a like a vendor can run a credit card through it to make it easier for you to pay. Um, he's talked about this idea of technology making, in some ways, the the pain or the, the friction of the purchase fade away, so you just sort of sit there and you, you know, enjoy your cappuccino and, and you don't sort of worry about how you got it, which sounds like great maybe, but maybe not so great. <laughs>
1: Well, it's certainly great in that it helps commerce, right? In that if you think about an Uber ride, when you just get into an Uber and then you leave and there's no handing of your credit card, it's a very elegant transaction, sure. And that helps the turnstile of the economy. And absolutely, I think moving to a credit-based society helps GDP growth, helps people spend more. But on an individual basis, if you're having financial problems, you may want to sort of pull back for that and create reasons for you to... Uh, not spend so much and, uh, you know, use credit cards. And this happens to be a very Western feeling. You know, in a lot of places around the world, credit card penetration is not particularly high. Like if you, even places like Germany where there's like 80 million people but only 10 million credit cards. Whoa. And, that's yeah, shocking and that's to a, me.
0: I mean, we must have many times the number of credit cards as there are people.
1: We do. I think it's probably three to one, uh, three credit cards for every person in America. And uh, yeah, I mean in Germany, it's, it's cultural. The word for debt in German is Schuld, which means guilt or sin. Huh. And so there's sort of cultural, you know, conniptions about uh, about putting things on a debit card. And of course, then you have like uh, the, the China and India, which are um, which are just uh, coming up e- economically, and they don't have as much credit card penetration as well. So America is pr- unique in having so much credit card distribution. And what Jack Dorsey says is right, but it's really sort of a very Western and American-centric view of commerce.
0: Are there societies that you've come across that are moneyless societies?
1: Sure. There's some examples of this. I mean, you can look at Burning Man, right? I don't know if that counts as a, as a permanent <laughs> as society. A, as a full-on,
0: <laughs> fully formed society. Yeah. That's okay. Give it to B- me.
1: But but for a few days at least, the, <laughs> these, uh, these partiers revel in the in the desert and they don't uh, have a you know a currency uh printed or coined currency it's all it's all the gift economy and people just do favors for each other hmm. and so that's one example of that another example is um is i think in, in the netherlands they're in they're passing a law or i think the law is already passed to not accept physical money at restaurants and some clothing stores that's sort of by edict saying no um cash or coined money hmm. Uh, but but credit is still acceptable.
0: And do you know why that is?
1: I think it's also it's expensive to administer money, right? I so see. I mm-hmm. actually I actually spoke at a conference It's called the Future of Cash Conference, and these were all the people whose business it is to move cash. They they were like rooting for cash, right, to to prevail. (laughs) And and I was was surprised um, when I got there at what I had signed up for, but it was interesting that there's a lot of money to be made in moving cash, storing it, protecting it, the security systems. And I know that it's cheaper to administer a credit or an invisible currency than to move all this cash around.
0: Right, right. Kabir Sagal is author of the book, Coined, The Rich Life of Money and How Its History Has Shaped Us. He's a former vice president at J.P. Morgan. Thank you so much for being here.
1: My pleasure. Great to be here.
0: And if you want to know more about how long people have been in debt to other people, we've got a link on our Facebook page to a talk about 5,000 years of debt. That's at Facebook.com slash Innovation Hub Radio. Also, I mentioned earlier that Kabir Segal, in addition to being a high finance type, is a Grammy award-winning jazz producer. This song is from his album, The Offense of the Drum.